Would you open with me your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 5, and we'll be reading from verse 8. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 8. If you see the poor oppressed in a district and justice and rights denied, do not be surprised at such things, for one official is eyed by a higher one, and over them both are others higher still. The increase from the land is taken by all. The king himself profits from the fields. Whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This, too, is meaningless. As goods increase, so do those who consume them. And what benefit are they to the owners except to feast their eyes on them? The sleep of a laborer is sweet, whether they eat little or much. But as for the rich, their abundance permits them no sleep. I have seen a grievous evil under the sun, wealth hoarded to the harm of its owners, or wealth lost through some misfortune, so that when they have children, there is nothing left for them to inherit. Everyone comes naked from their mother's womb, and as everyone comes, so they depart. They take nothing from their toil that they can carry in their hands. This, too, is a grievous evil. As everyone comes, so they depart. And what do they gain since they toil for the wind? All their days they eat in darkness with great frustration, affliction, and anger. This is what I have observed to be good, that it is appropriate for a person to eat, to drink, and to find satisfaction in their toilsome labor under the sun during the few days of life God has given them, for this is their lot. Moreover, when God gives someone wealth and possessions and the ability to enjoy them, to accept their lot and be happy in their toil, this is a gift of God. They seldom reflect on the days of their life because God keeps them occupied with gladness of heart. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for just communicating with us through scripture, and we pray that as we study this passage today that you will give us wisdom and guidance to know your word. Would you use this time to draw us closer to you? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We know as Christians that we're called to serve sacrificially. We know that God asks us to serve him as he brings forth his kingdom with our wealth, with our, our time, with the resources and skills that we have. But what does that really look like? I believe that one of the greatest obstacles we face in obeying God and serving him sacrificially is that we don't fully understand what God has actually called us to do. We often approach sacrificial serving out of a stance of ownership. God is asking me to give up my time to volunteer in a ministry. God is asking me to give up my money to support the work that he's doing. God is asking me to give up the way that I live my life to proclaim his good news to those around me. We know at some level that God has allowed us these things, but we view them as if they're ours. At least I do. And this shapes our view of how we serve God. We are coming to him out of a place of ownership. How much do I need to give to God of my time and resources for this to be a good sacrifice? We feel obligated to serve. We feel obligated to give. And what we're really interested in is how much of my time and my money and my resources can I protect and hold on to for myself? To be honest, it's, it's not a bad place to start when it comes to serving God, but I think he has so much in store, more in store for us when it comes to sacrificial service. I mean, the idea of sacrifice throughout the Bible is relational. Sacrifices weren't just done to give things to God. The Lord makes it very clear in Psalm 50, he doesn't need us to feed him. 
Sacrifices brought people into relationship with God. They reminded the people of their need for him. It was relational, not just a material transaction. And so we need to avoid the inclination in our hearts to approach sacrificial service to God out of a stance of ownership and obligation. And the biggest danger in viewing our service these ways is that we feel like we can impress God by how much we give him or that we can just fulfill a duty that he's asked us to to do by, by just giving enough, spending enough time for him. There's a way to approach sacrificial service, though, that I think is more meaningful for us and more meaningful to God. I mean, have you ever thought about how ridiculous it is for us as people to feel pride over what we're giving to God? How funny or sad it must seem to him when we approach God as if we've done some big favor for him. As if we approach God and say, you know, I really sacrificed today, God, aren't you proud of me? I mean, the closest I can get to understanding how God would feel is in grade five at my school, there was a Christmas craft sale one day. These people came up and they set up shop in the front hallway and groups of kids would go down and they look around this, this shop that they, they put up and you could buy things. And we had friends who were buying gifts for, for their parents and some people were buying things for themselves. And so on that day, I brought some money to school. I went down when it was my turn to go down to the, the craft store and I looked around and I saw a couple of little things that were of interest to me, but, but nothing much. So I spent a little bit of money, but I, I kept most of it and I went back to, to my class. And when I was in class, my friend Drew came up to me and said, I was really hoping to buy my family some gifts today, but I didn't bring any money. And so I, I gave him what I had left and I just said, you know what, just give me whatever's left over at the end. In all honesty, I probably got that money from my parents anyway, but we don't need to talk about that right now. But I gave him this money. I said, just give me whatever you don't use and, and, and it's fine with me. And so he goes down, he buys a couple things and he comes back and then he hands me about 50 cents. I'll be honest, I was expecting a little bit more. And then he gets this big smile on his face. He reaches into his pocket and he pulls out this ugly necklace. It's this black string with this like carved wooden owl hanging off the end of it. And he goes, I bought you something nice and he, he gives it to me because he wanted to thank me for letting him borrow some money. And I remember saying thank you and in my head thinking, you just bought me a gift with the money that I gave to you. And also thinking, I was just down there. If I really wanted that necklace, I could have just bought it for myself. But here you are giving me a gift bought with my own money that you feel really proud about. And to me, I think that's kind of the way that we approach God. That's the way our sacrifices look like to him sometimes. I mean, don't get me wrong. I believe one of the marks of a healthy church is that we do sacrificially serve with all of the resources that we have. As a church, we need to serve and serve together. We need to all carry the load of the work that God has called us to. The question is, how do we do that in a way that isn't as laughable as buying a friend a gift with their own money? How do we serve God in a way that is, is more than just a transaction? How do we serve God in a way that it's, it's more than just an obligation? How do we serve God in a way when it, where it becomes less about how much do I have to give to God and how much can I hold on to? How do we serve in a way that makes it clear that we are dependent on God and not in a way that seems to imply that he is dependent on us? 
And I think to do this, we need to realize that these resources, our money, our time, our career, our skills, all the stuff that we have isn't as meaningful as we make them out to be. Don't get me wrong, they're important. We need them to do the work that God has called us to do. But we need to understand that they aren't ultimately as meaningful as we would like them to be. We need to be aware of their eternal value, that they cannot satisfy us and the longings that we have in our heart. And when we have the right perspective of our resources, we'll be able to see the beauty in serving sacrificially. We can move out of a place of ownership and obligation out of a place of holding tightly to what we have and move into a place much more deeper and much more relational as we serve God. And to understand this, I want to look at Ecclesiastes chapter 5, and I want to explore this idea. And this passage, it, it talks about money, but the idea is about so much more than money because really what we're looking at here is someone's heart. And so let's begin by just working through this passage together but I do want to give us one reminder. When we're in Ecclesiastes, we're reading wisdom literature. And so we're dealing with principles and generalizations, not promises. And so just keep that in mind as we walk through this together. So just verse eight. If you see the poor oppressed in a district and justice and rights denied, do not be surprised at such things. For one official is eyed by a higher one, and over them both are others higher still. The increase from the land is taken by all. The king himself profits from the field. And so we begin here just with a look at oppression. And what's being said is that we shouldn't be surprised at oppression. Don't be surprised when you see people with power and resources taking advantage of those who don't have them. Don't be surprised when you see people abusing their resources and using them selfishly. I want to be clear. The author is not saying don't be surprised because this is okay. We see throughout the Bible that justice and righteousness are the responsibility of those in leadership and those with resources. We see that clearly in the Torah and the law. Uh, in the wisdom literature, in the prophets, we see that in the gospels and the epistles, we see that throughout the scriptures, that righteousness and justice are what God's people are called to. But what the Bible is making clear here is that this is how the author has seen life working out over and over again. He's not saying don't be surprised at the oppression that you see because it doesn't matter to God. What he's saying is don't be surprised by the oppression that you see because that's the reality that we live in in a broken and sinful world. It's not good, but it's what the author has witnessed time and time again. And so he goes into the details of explaining why this oppression keeps happening. And his reason, the reason that God has given him, is the love of money. Verse 10, whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This too is meaningless. Ecclesiastes here connects the oppression that we see to the love of money. Again, we need to be clear here. Ecclesiastes is full of nuance. The point that's being made is not that possessing money is bad, but the love of money, the chase for more money is meaningless. And that word meaningless helps us understand why the love of money can be so harmful. The, the Hebrew word that we translate to meaningless here is havel, and it's better understood as a vapor or a, a smoke. You, you try to grab it, but there's nothing there to hold on to. 
In the case of money, Tremper Longman writes, those who set the acquisition of money as their highest goal in life have a never ending task. Those who set the acquisition of money as their highest goal in life have a never ending task. When money is our highest love, you will never have enough. You will never be satisfied. There's always more. So if you look for your meaning and your sense of worth in the love of money that you have, you will never find your meaning. You'll be left wanting more. When you grasp at money to give you your ultimate meaning, you might as well try to grab smoke. But let's continue as we read through this passage together. As goods increase, so do those who consume them. And what benefit are they to the owners except to feast their eyes on them? As you get more resources, more people want them. The more money you get, the more people start to pay attention to you. One of the first rap songs I ever remember listening to was Mo Money, Mo Problems by Notorious B.I.G., Puff Daddy, and Mace. And the chorus states, I don't know what they want from me. It's like the more money we come across, the more problems we see. And I think that gets to the heart of what Ecclesiastes is getting at here. The more money you come across, the more people want to borrow it. The more resources you get, the more people need them. You get a new truck, people need to move. You get more time on your hands, people need babysitters. And it's not that these are bad or these people are evil, but if you're looking at money and getting more money as something that's gonna be relaxing for you, you don't really understand how this works. And not only that, but what good is more money and more resources actually? You have money and nice stuff and you just look at it. Now, I don't think that's necessarily a condemnation in the text. People were created to enjoy beautiful things. We have art, we love looking at nature. Uh, it's okay to like nice things, that's fine. But you need to understand, it's gonna get strapped, it's gonna get scratched, it's gonna break, it's gonna be replaced, it's gonna get old, it's gonna end up in a landfill. So don't place too much value or attention on it. Enjoy it for what it is and nothing more. Verse 12. The sleep of a laborer is sweet, whether they eat little or much, but as for the rich, their abundance permits them no sleep. The love of money, this chase of money, even affects our mental health. An overwhelming focus, an, an obsession with gaining more, brings more stress. Again, remember that we're dealing with generalizations, not promises, but the concern for wealth is keeping people up at night. Maybe it's the pressure and responsibilities at work or being in charge of vast amounts of money. Maybe it's the lavish behaviors that people are living in. One, one commentator pointed to indigestion from a lavish diet as the reason why people can't sleep in this passage. But whatever the reason is, it's clear that with these riches and resources are coming a lack of rest. The laborer, on the other hand though, works hard every day just to make ends meet, but sleeps like a baby. Maybe it's a hard day of work that tires them out. Maybe it's the lack of pressure from the job that follows them home or the lack of obsession on what else they can get. But they're able to find rest. They're able to find sleep. That's the generalization that we're seeing here in this text. Verse 13. I have seen a grievous evil under the sun, wealth hoarded to the harm of its owners or wealth lost through some misfortune so that when they have children, there is nothing left for them to inherit. Everyone comes naked from their mother's womb, and as everyone comes, so they depart. They take nothing from their toil that they can carry in their hands. 
This too is a grievous evil. As everyone comes, so they depart. And what do they gain since they toil for the wind? All their days they eat in darkness with great frustration, affliction, and anger. Here we get to the point where God, through the author of Ecclesiastes, makes clear why this chase for money is a foolish place to find our ultimate value and satisfaction. Wealth can be lost for all different kinds of reasons. I mean, just look at the business world. When I was a teenager, Blockbuster was one of the biggest businesses in the world. I remember going with my friends from youth group or school every week to Blockbuster, renting a movie and watching it together. In the year 2000, Blockbuster reported making $800 million in late fees alone. And that was just 16% of their income that year. They were on top of the world in the early 2000s. But by 2010, they had a billion dollar debt and filed for bankruptcy. And what happened? Did they do anything wrong? Not really. Technology just passed them. They couldn't keep up with Netflix. And, and my favorite part about the Blockbuster story is that Netflix was started by a guy who was mad because he had a $40 late fee. And so he created this business that ultimately wiped out Blockbuster. There are no guarantees when it comes to money. Fortunes are lost all of the time. Ultimately, you come into this world without money and you leave the world without money. When it comes to finding our eternal satisfaction, we need to be looking for something that we have when we're first created, before we were even born, and something that is available to us when we leave this world. In fact, generally speaking, the negative effects of the pursuit of money are much more impactful and longer lasting than the money itself. The darkness, the misery, the stress, the sickness, the strain, the frustration. Just like the author writes earlier about the love of money, he makes the point again here, saying that it's like chasing the wind. How do you catch the wind? You can't. Again, we'll look at the words of Tremper Longman. He writes, since holding on to wealth is problematic during life and impossible at death, the laborer really toils for something of little or no substance, the wind. But we continue. This is what I observe to be good, that it is appropriate for a person to eat to drink and to find satisfaction in their toilsome labor under the sun during the few days of life God has given them, for this is their lot. Moreover, when God gives someone wealth and possessions and the ability to enjoy them, to accept their lot and be happy in their toil, this is a gift of God. They seldom reflect on the days of their life because God keeps them occupied with gladness of heart. Now we get to some positive words out of our passage. Although the book of Ecclesiastes has this reputation of, of being a little bleak, we'll say, we get these joy passages that are scattered throughout it. And here in our section, we come to the fourth joy passage in the book. And we notice that the author makes it very clear that money is not the problem here. In fact, money can be a gift of God. And to enjoy money can be a gift of God. But God is trying to make it clear in this passage, as we look at the entirety of it, that money cannot give meaning. The issue isn't our resources, it's to remember that our resources are a gift of God. And I want to make clear here that this idea isn't just pertaining to money. That's what we read about in, in chapter 5 here. But the book of Ecclesiastes, it, it addresses money, it addresses relationships, wisdom, careers, social status, pleasure, all of these things that we have as our resources in our life, and it's the same verdict for all of them meaningless. 
These things aren't bad of their own accord, but it needs to be understood that they are gifts from God and they do not bring real meaning to our lives. We don't own them out of our own merit alone. And this view of our resources as things that cannot bring us any real value, any real meaning in our lives, that they are gifts from God, this helps us move from viewing sacrificial service from a place of ownership and obligation in two ways. First, it reminds us that everything that we have is a gift from God. To give them back to God is like giving a gift that we purchased with his money. We aren't going to impress God just by giving him back the resources that he's given us. Money, time, skill, social status, career. He gave all of those to us. And yes, we can enjoy them. And yes, we are to use them for God's glory. But to act like we're doing a big favor to God by giving them back to him is to miss the point. We neglect the fact that those gifts are his that he's given to us already. And number two... We've established that these things have no eternal meaning to them. We can't stop. Uh, we can stop trying to cling on to them because they aren't going to satisfy us. We don't need to worry about how do I hold on to as much as I can because they don't bring us any real meaning. They can't. And if we're trying to give God something that is meaningful, we're going to have to aim a little higher than just giving back the resources he's given to us and calling it a day. It's not about what we have that we can give to God. So how do we view and serve God? Uh, how do we view serving God in a way that's more meaningful? How can we serve God in a way that's more meaningful to us and to God? We, what we need to do is find out where real meaning can be found and make that the root of our sacrificial offering to God. And where do we find real meaning? The author hints at it at the end of our passage when we read through that joy section. The gifts don't give meaning, but the one who gives the gifts gives us meaning. And this becomes even more clear when you go to the end of the book of Ecclesiastes and you look at the last two verses. Ecclesiastes 12, 13, and 14. Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the duty of all mankind. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is evil or good. And so where do we find true meaning? What can we actually hold on to that isn't just smoke, something that we can actually grasp and that gives us the satisfaction we're looking for? It's God. It's our relationship with God. That's where we find our true meaning. And this is what our sacrificial service has to make clear in our lives if it's going to be meaningful. Now we can stop viewing our sacrifice to God as offering our stuff to him. We need to move from a place of ownership. I give my stuff to God, an obligation. I give my stuff to God because I have to. We need to move from that to a place of I'm offering God all of me because my meaning is found in relationship with him. Everything I have, everything I am, is for God. God doesn't need his stuff back. He wants our hearts. Instead of how much of my resources do I have to give to him, now I can pray and think through 
all of these things at my disposal, how do I use them in a way that glorifies God? How do I rest in a way that glorifies God? How do I enjoy the gifts he's given me in a way that glorifies God? How do I serve and use my time in a way that's glorifying to God? How do I use my money and my skills and my career and my family in ways that bring glory to God? Not just how much do I have to give him? And we can see this philosophy, this idea of sacrifice in Genesis 4, when we look at the account of the sacrifices of Cain and Abel. Genesis 4, starting in the second half of verse 2, reads like this. Now Abel kept flocks and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from, this, from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. God accepts Abel's offering and not Cain's. Why? Does God like shepherds more than farmers? And don't laugh because that's an actual debate that happens over this verse. Um, no. Is it that Abel's sacrifice was more expensive? Maybe God had a surplus of veggies and he needed some meat. Were the veggies moldy? No, it's not about any of those things. It's the heart behind the sacrifice. Abel brings fat portion from the firstborn of his flock. He brought his first usable um, product to God. No guarantees that any more would be good or even usable. Disaster may strike, but Abel gives his best and his first to God. And Cain brings some vegetables. It's the and Peggy of sacrifices. His sacrifice is an afterthought. He's made plans for all of his crops and he's planned to give some of them to God. But Abel comes and gives God his first. The, the JPS commentary says this about the sacrifices from these brothers. Abel appears to have demonstrated a quality of heart and mind that Cain did not possess. It's not about the quality of the sacrifice, but the heart of the sacrifice. Abel is trusting God, loving God. He desires to give God himself and his best. And Cain just gives to God. And there are a couple things that I think we need to do then when it comes to serving God sacrificially with all of our lives. One, we need to pray that God would change our hearts and help us to stop thinking about how we divvy up the resources that we have uh, between us and him. God gets this amount and I get to keep this amount. How do we use our gifts, our resources to bring glory to God? How do, how do I enjoy what God has allowed me to have in a way that glorifies him first? And two, we need to ask God to reveal the resources in our lives that we're trying to protect and hold on to. The things that I'm refusing to offer God, the things that I don't want to serve with. For some of us, maybe it's our money. For some of us, maybe it's our time. We're just too busy. We don't have enough time to serve at church. We don't have enough time to, to build a relationship with our neighbors. For some of us, maybe it's our reputation. I'll never forget the luncheon that we were able to have with, with Sam Albert a few years ago when he was talking about singleness. And he said that there are a lot of people in the church who are married and have families who need to learn what it looks like to serve God with their families. There's a lot of people who say, I will go to church and serve, and then I'll come back and have my family time that I don't give up to anyone. But what does it look like to actually glorify God in your families and with your families and welcome people in? What are the things that we're holding on to 
God needs to make those clear in our lives. We need to ask him to show those things to us. And then we need to ask him to show us what does it look like to start serving with those starting right now. There's nothing that we're holding back from him. That's what my sacrifice needs to be if I'm going to to do anything that's meaningful to to myself and and for God. And if I'm going to sacrifice in a way that puts my relationship with God at the center of my life and not the things that I'm trying to hold on to. Now, this may seem overwhelming. How, how do I actually move to a place where I'm serving? Uh, how do I move from a place where I'm serving out of, a, out of a heart of ownership and obligation to a place where it's meaningful and full-hearted, where I take joy and love in sacrificing and serving God? How can I stop looking at my money, my time, and my family, my reputation as things to hold on to? Or what if I don't feel close to God right now? What if I'm not in a place where it's easy for me to view my entire life as something that I offer to God? What do we do when we're in in those difficult situations? We continue to give sacrificially. We continue to serve. We continue to, to, to honor God with what he's given us, even when it's coming out of a place of ownership and obligation. But we pray for God to change our hearts and we remind ourselves why we serve God with all of our lives. We look to the sacrifice that God has given for us to remind us of why we sacrifice to God. This is what Hebrews 9, 11, uh, 9 verses 11 to 14 tells us. But when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands. That is to say, is not a part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean uh, sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? We sacrifice to God because Christ sacrificed first. We love God because God loved us first. Christ offered himself unblemished to God to make us clean. He gave himself fully for us. And so we respond out of the love given to us by Christ by offering ourselves in return. And did you notice he he offered himself to make us clean so that we may serve. This is our response to the love of God given to us through the gospel work of Christ. We don't sacrificially serve because God needs us to, or even to earn a relationship with him. Jesus sacrificed for us so that we can be in relationship with God, so that we can experience the love that God has, even though we had no right to experience it on our own accord. Jesus sacrificed for us so that we could find the meaning that we're looking for in our lives. He gave himself for us, and we offer ourselves all of us joyfully in response out of love for him. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your sacrifice. We thank you for who you are and your great love for us, that even though we don't deserve your love, even though we're sinners and have rebelled against you, you've sacrificed for us, that you held nothing back from us, God. And I pray that you'd give us the strength and courage and wisdom that we need to give ourselves to you, to to honor you and glorify you in what you've given to us, to hold nothing back from you, God. May you continue to show us 
more and more of yourself and your love for us and to grow the love that we have for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.